You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Judges chapters 4 and 5. We're going to look at our female judge uh, this week, Deborah. Judges chapters 4 and 5. How in the world are we going to cover two chapters and the amount of time that I usually get to preach? Well, we did in the first service, so keep praying for a miracle. We'll try and do it again here. Uh, but as you're turning in your Bibles to that, I want to say I'm really thankful that we live in the day and age that we do with all of the safety gadgets that we have. And I don't know, I probably wouldn't be able to stand here and preach to you if it weren't for somebody who came up with ways to protect us from us uh, in life. But how many of you here have outlet covers to protect your kids from sticking, you know, needles and pins and all kinds of stuff in your outlet covers? Some of you have, have you seen those? Everybody seen those at least if you don't have those in your house? Uh, we didn't have those when I was a kid. Uh, do you know how you learned not to stick something in the outlet? You did it once and then... You walk around for a week like this, and your dad's like, you okay? Yeah, 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 dad, I'm okay, I'm okay. Kids who did it more than once, they're no longer here. And so we are we're thankful for those safety devices. I was looking at, I saw somebody had a picture on social media of an antique car, and it was this turquoise car, had this metal turquoise dashboard, and I thought, wow, how times have changed. Can you imagine crashing into that dashboard going 60 miles an hour? Now we have an air mattress that flies out of the dashboard before you hit it and take a nap right there on the... The safety features are helpful, but there's also a caution with that is that we don't recognize real danger. And so today, as we get started in our passage, I want to just quiz you a little bit on whether you recognize what's truly dangerous or not. And so I'm going to pop up some pictures and then just ask you to pick which one is more dangerous. And by danger, we'll talk about deadly. We've got a slide here. On my right is food. That's not necessarily restaurant food. Forget the fact there's so many pieces of broccoli on that. Um, that's not the point. And then sharks. So do more people die from foodborne illnesses or shark attacks? How many people think it's sharks? How many sharks, shark attacks? You know that I'm going to try and trick you, so you're not going to pay the shark. Some of you are like, well, I think maybe, maybe, but maybe it's so obvious. Like, food? How many of you think food? I'm not talking about choking on your food, just so you know. No Heimlich like, you know, the lessons here. All right, so statistics will tell us that it's food. 3,000 people a year die from foodborne illnesses. But listen to this stat on the shark attacks. I thought this was pretty interesting. Last year, there were nine fatalities worldwide, but then the stat says only five unprovoked. Hold on. <laughs> Who are the four people that are talking trash to sharks? <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten attacked by a shark, but then I was like, what's up? What's up? Like, Come on. You want to go? Shark's like, yeah. All right. Um, all right. Next slide. We're going to do make it a little more complicated. There's three. That's not just a bear. Think about this name. It's a grizzly bear. Selfies or lawnmower accidents? Hmm? All right. How many of you here think it's uh, lawnmowers? Okay, got about four, five, six, seven, ten. How many here think it's selfies? How many here think it's grizzly bears? Anybody here ever seen Revenant? Anyway, uh, here's the stats. The stats tell us that between 2020 and 2022, there were eight deaths from grizzly bear attacks in the United States. One article I read actually said this. Bear encounters are actually more dangerous for the bears themselves. In a study of 600 bear run-ins with humans, the bears ended up dying 34% of the time. What they don't tell you is that's from foodborne illnesses. Selfies here is 43 deaths per year, so that's, that is dangerous, but not as dangerous as lawnmowers. The CDC reports uh, a study from between 1999 and 2014 says the average death rate per year is 63. So 43 selfies, 63 lawnmowers. Oh, see? You thought a camera was more dangerous than a blade moving really. Anyway, here we go. We're not good at telling. Last one, last slide here. Wolves, the middle one is not drinking. The middle one is a champagne cork, which can travel at 55 miles per hour, just so you know. Pops out of that. Or alligators. So you see alligators here. Go ahead and process. Think for a second. How many people here would say wolves are the most dangerous? Okay, only a couple of you think that your college mascot is more dangerous than a cork on a bottle. All right. Corks? Champagne corks? How many here? Alligators? All right. Alligators have the most votes by far, for sure. Here are the statistics. That was actually the one with the least. Alligators <laughs> result in one death per year. Wolves, 26 in 20 years. So that averages out to 1.3 per year. However, champagne corks kill, it is estimated based on a 2008 study, six people per year. 
So who would have thought that champagne corks, selfies, and lawnmowers kill more people than sharks and grizzly bears and alligators combined? <laughs> My point being is we may not be the best at even knowing what danger is. And is it possible that we might be wrong about being dangerous? And I want to propose to you today, the, 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 the argument that I'm going to make to you today is this. And so I'm going to try and persuade you and show you from the Bible, but you can disagree. And I'm fine with that conversation. Is that our world is in desperate need of dangerous leaders. That we are in desperate need of dangerous leaders. And we see two of them in this passage of Scripture. One is named Deborah. The other is another woman named Jael. Judges chapter 4 and 5. If you haven't been with us, uh, the summary to get you up to speed is there's been a lot of information, but there's a leadership crisis in Israel in the book of Judges. There's a time when there is no king. That was by God's design. But he did raise up leaders. And Judges chapter 1 and verse 1 sets the tone. It says, after the death of Joshua. Joshua is the book that comes before Judges in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges. Joshua just died. He was a good leader. What you see in the Old Testament is that when the leader of the nation follows God, the nation, for the most part, there's all, everybody's got their own story, everybody's doing their own thing. For the most part, the people follow God. But when the leader follows anything in creation, it could be their own power, sex, ministry, their money, it can be things that seem good. Could, whenever they follow a created thing, things go poorly for the nation. It's not just a story of the Old Testament, it's a story of the New Testament. Not just a story of the New Testament, it's a story of life. And I have yet to see a leader, as much as I've seen Christians passionately argue for both sides, I've yet to see one calling us to repentance and glory to God. They all use Bible verses. When debates come, they will appeal to a voter base. But what's at the heart? Judges says the heart of the people was this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they would have said things like this. You do you. Be true to yourself. Just follow your heart. And the Lord says that that's evil in his sight. That's how most of the passages we've looked at have started. And that's how Judges chapter 4 starts. And the people of Israel, again, don't miss that, again, this is a cycle, it keeps happening, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Okay, so Ehud was the judge two times ago. Last week, we looked at a guy named Shamgar, just one verse. Uh, remember he used a bow staff to kill uh, 600 people at once? Uh, they called it an ox goad. I think there were two people in the congregation that knew what an ox goad was. I wasn't one of the two. I had to look it up before I preached the sermon. It's basically, he was Mr. Miyagi, okay? Seen Karate Kid? Skeleton guys are chasing Daniel. He hops out, knocks them all out. Whoa, whoa. And so that's who Shamgar was. He killed 600 Philistines with a stick because all their weapons had been taken away. But that happened while Ehud was ruling and reigning. Oh, so it's complicated. It's not just everybody. and in one, No, they're divided. Uh, different tribes believe different things. They present different pictures of who Yahweh is because they're all doing what's right in their own eyes. See, it's not, we talk about the prostitution and we talk about the, 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 the incest and the, all the crazy sacrifices. At the heart of it all is the same problem we have. They did what's right in their own eyes. And what we have in chapter 4 and 5, and the reason why I'll be able to cover two chapters at once is because they both say the same thing. Chapter 4, I'm going to read to you right now, and chapter 4 gives you the facts. It's written from the perspective of a historian. Chapter 5 is poetic. It's music. It's a song, and it's talking about the same events. Now, you get different details in both, but it gives you more of the theology of what took place. So if you're an engineer, you're going to love chapter 4. If you're an artist, you're going to love chapter 5. We've got something for everybody today. And so we all have the same facts. I'm going to read to you from chapter 4, then I'm going to preach to you from chapter 5. So after Ehud died, what happens is they continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sold them. The Lord sold them. Remember, when we become arrogant, God becomes our enemy. We're fighting. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we do what's right in our own eyes, that's the epitome of arrogance. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, he's the king, but he's not the key figure here. I want you to get the players when we read the chapter on the facts, and the, the main player is going to be his commander. It's this next guy. The commander of his army was Sisera. Sisera is about as wicked as they get. He's got an army that many people would believe was unbeatable. 
I'll read in the next part of this passage that there's 900 chariots. Some historians, when they read the Bible, go, no way. That can't be, the Bible can't be accurate here. They must be making, it's hyperbole. Who has 900 chariots? Here's what we know. He's incredibly successful. He's a well-decorated soldier, and he's incredibly wicked. We'll read at the end of chapter 5 if we get there. That he, after he loses, after he gets killed, he's going to be killed. His mom's looking for him to come home. Where's one of his chariots going to pull up? And her servants say to her, well, you know the saying, when you win the battle, a womb or two for every man? Yeah. Talk about sex trafficking. Cicero was a human trafficker. He would come, take young girls, have sex with them, then hold them as his own slaves for his lustful pleasures. So I talked last week about Super Bowl Sunday and all the prostitution that will come into the city wherever the Super Bowl is hosted and how the trafficking will go up. Whenever there was a battle and somebody won, then the trafficking went up because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. You do whatever you want. And so here, this is the kind of guy we're talking about when we talk about Sisera. He lived in Harashas Hayrim. I don't know how to say that, but it sounds kind of Hebrew to say it like that. So. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he pressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, 900 chariots. To put that in perspective, when Moses was standing at the edge of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's coming, and Pharaoh, they're ruling the world, they're the biggest army, they're coming. You know how many chariots they had? 600. Sisera's got 900 chariots. Unbeatable. Do you know how many chariots Israel has at this point? None. Remember, there's a guy beating people with a stick. All their weapons have been taken away. They don't have any chariots. So look what happens here. There's this woman, Deborah. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, a prophet. Sometimes people at church think a prophet means you predict the future. There's sometimes where there will be a vision of the future, but to be a prophet means you speak on behalf of God. She's a prophetess, meaning she's a female that speaks on behalf of God. She's also the wife of a guy named Lipidoth here, and she was a judge. Now, this judge is the only judge that even resembles what we oftentimes think of when we hear the word judge, because she's making decisions about difficult cases. People are coming to her for her discernment, and so she's a mouthpiece for God. She's a judge. She's going to rule as a king. She performs here because the priestly function of the religious establishment of Israel is so broken, and a priestly function. And so you have a woman here, a prophet, priest, a king. Who does she point to? Jesus. But interestingly enough, she's not the deliverer in this story. There's a guy. Um, first, there's this part here where it says that she used to sit under her, a palm tree. The palm tree of that's kind of cool, right? The palm tree of Deborah. You think she was just walking along? It's like, hey, that tree's got Deborah written on it. I'm gonna hang out here. No, there's a tree where she would regularly go and people would come to her for judgment. See what happens? It says, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinamant, but I don't know how to say these names. Come on. Abinam, there you go, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, oh, that's interesting phrasing, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots. Wait, he's bringing the chariots? Hmm. And his troops, and I'll, I'll give them into your hand. Now, it appears here that Barak's already received this command. Hasn't the Lord told you? Hasn't he already commanded you? What are you doing sitting here? Now, some people take it in a more positive light and say, well, she's saying this, that's the way she's phrasing it. The Lord has commanded. Hasn't he told? Hasn't the Lord told you? If I'm Barak, I'm going, I don't know, did he? That's not what happens. I think he knew the command and he wasn't stepping out. And you see what ends up happening is that he says to her, well, I'll, I'll go, but only if you go. She says, paraphrase, we'll read it in a little while, I wouldn't miss it. <laughs> you jump down, they get victory. Look down, jump down to verse 16 for the sake of time. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Haresh Hagim and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Oh, I thought they had 900 chariots. But Sisera, remember, he's the bad guy. Fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Okay, so main characters here, Barak, Deborah, Jael, Sisera. Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Canaanite. Okay, so her husband is in cahoots with Sisera's boss. Okay? 
And Jael came out to meet Sisera, here's some hospitality, and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent. She covered him with a rug, hospitality. He said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. Go lie for me. Guard me. Take a nap. Thanks for the blanket. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. This is not a clean kill, by the way. This is not silencer to a pillow. It's all over. And she went softly to him and drove a peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. <laughs> yep. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him, she probably covered in blood, said to him, come and I'll show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went out in her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. And now chapter 5, and this is the verse most of the rest of our time I'll spend on. Then sang Deborah and Barak. So now they're singing a song. It's significant that Deborah's name comes before Barak. It's a sign of honor. The son of Abinom. On that day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. And then the rest of the chapter is a recounting of what we just read in poetic language, and you get a little bit more details. And Shamgar's mentioned because there's overlap probably in those times. It's not a linear flannel graph story that's taking place. This is real life, and it gets real messy. But I love that statement. The day the leaders led, oh man, we need that day. I mean, history's filled with dangerous leaders. Think about it. Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, Pol Pot. Today, maybe we would say... Putin, some dangerous leaders out there, dangerous for evil. Then you can look at the history books in another direction and see there's people that are dangerous to evil. Martin Luther King Jr., Mandela, Eisenhower, Roosevelt, Churchill, Reagan. Start seeing some people that are dangerous to evil, people that are dangerous for evil. What I'm talking to you about today is neither of those things. I'm not talking to you about just not being evil or even just being dangerous to evil. There's another level. You know what being dangerously godly in our leadership? And that means that you are a force for light against the kingdom of darkness. It's not just about the physical things that are taking place. We know that we've got a battle that's way bigger than that, Ephesians chapter 6. And then we've got a lot of people that are afraid to engage And so, what is it to be a dangerously godly leader? And that's what we're going to unpack today. And the first thing we're going to see is that a dangerously godly leader is courageous when others cower. A dangerously godly leader requires courage, even when other people cower. Remember, Joshua was such a great leader. And how did that whole commission start off? God said to him, be strong and courageous, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you, not because you're awesome, Joshua, because I'm with you. You can be strong and courageous. But wouldn't that make you dangerous? In a good way, yeah. And here we have this time where people are cowering. They've been cruelly oppressed for 20 years by a human trafficking rapist. But on that day, Chapter 5, verse 2, the leaders led, and the people willingly offered their lives. Now, to be fair, there are some scholars that say that the Hebrew of the leaders led, very literally, should just be translated, when the locks of hair grow long in Israel. (laughs) And they actually believe that that just means that the soldiers had long hair. So a bunch of Fabios running down the mountain at the chariots. If you translate it that way, in the way that English Standard Version that I was just reading to you from, the ESV comes to the conclusion of the day the leaders led, is because the long hair could be a sign of their commitment to the battle, a commitment to the Lord. And so they didn't cut their hair as a vow of commitment. And the reason why I agree with the translation that it's about the leaders leading is because of the next phrase when it says the people willingly offer, the, they're risking their lives. And that's courage. 
Who wants to do that? There's a story of Ernest Shackleton. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he was an explorer in the early 1900s, around 1911, 1914, in that time frame, and explored the Antarctic. And he issued a call for people to come with him as he was trying to be, he had a vision to be the first one to go from sea to sea, crossing that area and coming to Antarctica. The ad that he put in the paper said this, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold. Hold up. Small wages and bitter cold? Can't you just, like, one of the two? Like, either a beach or at least pay us? Anyway. Long months of complete darkness. Uh, I'm out. Constant danger. Safe return doubtful. <laughs> Honor and recognition. Maybe. And if you know the story, that's a pretty accurate description of what happens. Who's signing up for that? That takes some courage. 27 men did. You can look the story up on your own. Here, 20 years of oppression under an unbeatable army, a, a general that appears to be a coward. Haven't God already told you? Did you see their chariots? Like, and then you've got this woman who steps up with incredible courage named Deborah. Now, a lot of people um, think that the Bible somehow oppresses women. Now, there's people that have used the Bible to oppress women. But when you read the Bible, you see it's not like Deborah's the only one. Now, if you want a passage on strong women, uh, there's two just in this chapter. Chapter Deborah, you want one with a position? You want one with reputation? Uh, the palm trees is probably a sign of her being a distinguished person in the community. That's in Song of Solomon. You're a distinguished woman, he says to his lover. But in Isaiah, the palm tree is a sign of leadership. Well, she's clearly a leader. She's already a prophetess. She doesn't become a prophetess because of the circumstances that are happening. And, and, and so you got her with a position. Then you got J.L. The tent peg was a woman's instrument. Women set up tent. That was a woman's job. Women were oppressed in this society. They weren't leaders. That's unique of Deborah. J.L. is a common, normal, everyday woman. He uses a common, everyday woman's object to kill a man who objectifies women. You got some strong women in this passage, but it's not like this is the only passage. Like, go through the Bible. They're all over, from the book of Genesis all the way to the end. And so you get, you know, whether it's an Esther or a Hannah or a Ruth or a Rahab, or you think about the Mary giving birth to Jesus, a teenage girl in this little nothing town is told all your dreams, which are really small anyways, they're shattered, so you can follow God. There's some risk for you. People are going to slander you and say stuff that's not true about you because you're doing what God wants you to do and you've got to deal with it. You're a teenage girl. There's some courage. One of my favorites is a woman named Joanna. There's not a lot written about her, so they've probably heard a bunch of sermons preached on her. But in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, we find out there's these women that are funding the ministry of Jesus. It says this, it says, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa or Cusa, Herod's household manager. So he's, he's Herod's right-hand man. His wife's following Jesus. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their own means. Okay, where did her means come from? Uh, her husband worked for Herod. You know who Herod is? Uh, he had John the Baptist's head cut off. When you read about the trials of Jesus, he's mocking and ridiculing Jesus along with his soldiers that are doing the same thing. Not a, not a faith-friendly leader there, all right? So there's some boldness that Joanna is taking her own money, going wherever Jesus tells her to go, and then funding the ministry that he's doing. Some bold women in the Bible. Esther stops a whole genocide. How about the unnamed woman in Luke chapter 7? And she's positioned as a picture of passion and devotion and love. In contrast to the man who has a position and is apathetic and hypocritical. Hmm. The Bible's not oppressing women. The Bible tells us that, that men and women are equal. That at the cross, Galatians 3.28, there's either neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're equal. Equal in value doesn't mean that we're the same, though. And that's where we get this messed up. Uh, when we look at the world. So equal and equivalent, not the same thing. Doesn't mean we do the same things. And so if we want to take your lead from the world and you want to do whatever seems right in your own eyes, you can do that. But just pointing out, the world doesn't even know what a woman is. Just, just saying. The whole documentary of a guy walking around going, what's a woman? There you go. And it's like, I don't know. Just, I, who wants to watch that? But you did. And Miss Nevada, 2021, was a guy. Come on. So we don't even know what a woman is, but we're going to go, yeah, but then this is what I think, and this is how it should, and how about, okay, maybe you've experienced some bad male leadership, 
The only thing the Bible says that's reserved for a man are two spots where a man's not going to naturally lead because he becomes passive. The home, Ephesians 6.4, does not say parents, disciple your kids. It says fathers, it's a male word, fathers, disciple your, your, your responsible. Now, my kids misuse that verse. They, it says, do not exasperate your children. I'm like, no, doesn't mean I can't pick on you. Doesn't mean I can't tease you. It just means I need to tell you about Jesus. So I do that, and then I pick. And so that's how we do. Do not exasperate your children by not training them up in the Lord. And then there's debates amongst Christians about where a woman can lead in the church. And in Timothy, it talks about not having authority or teaching in this context of talking about the church. And so I believe that it means it's just reserving the, the role of elder. And I believe the reason for that is because a man wouldn't do that naturally. It's an evidence of God's supernatural work in their life. And so we talk about those things, but it doesn't say anything about being president. Uh, here you've got Deborah ruling like a king. It doesn't say you can't teach God's word. She's a prophetess, not an elder. She's a prophetess. You've got women leaning all over the place in the Bible. And so the Bible's not a book to oppress women. In fact, it's a great, this is in a culture where women were oppressed, is in showing that God raises them up as leaders. And so here you've got this woman, Deborah, and one of the things I think that's so powerful about her courage is her humility. You see, when people are really arrogant, that's not a sign of their confidence. That's a sign of insecurity. When you see true humility, you know you have something there. It says she, she went and summons Barak, the son of Abinam from Kadesh Naphtali. And I think they've just put these names in here to make my job hard. But anyway, <laughs> said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? So like I said, it appears that he's not doing what he's been commanded to do. Go gather your men from Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from Naphtali and, then, and from Zebulun, and not here, Zebulun, Zebulun in the Bible, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, and so he's going to park his chariots next to a river, with his chariots and his troops, and I'll give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you won't go with me, I'm not going to go. She said, I'm going. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Which we read that and we think, she's talking about herself. She's not talking about herself. She's talking about the woman who drove the tent peg through his head, Jael. And that's who gets sung to in chapter 5. And Jael, and how honorable she is. So here you have Deborah, who's an incredible leader. But you know what? You don't just look at what she does. Look at what she doesn't do, because she's different than the other judges. Unlike the other judges, she doesn't go into battle as a warrior and defeat the enemy as the deliverer. Instead, she goes to Barak. And so you have this team here that's working. She's a prophetess. She, everything about her life points to Jesus. She speaks on behalf of God. She's a prophet. She's a priestly function. The people are coming to her, and she's giving a word from God, like a bridge between God and the people. She's a judge. Oh, sounds like Jesus. She's going to rule at the end of this as like a king, well, queen. That's Jesus. So it's not taking anything away from her, but she's so confident, she doesn't say, give me this sword. I got these people. Barak, you've got to step into your role. See, when you're confident in who God has you to be, you don't need to be who someone else is supposed to be. That's one of the things that comparison is killing us with. So keep looking at other people's lives and I need to be like that. I need to be like that. Really? Well, is it, is it coincidence that you just happen to dress like all the people you hang out with? You happen to think like all the people you hang out with. Maybe God has you to be a unique person, regardless of where you live, work, who your friends are, and what confidence it would be for you to just be yourself. And here we see that with Deborah. I already said that she's a wife, so we know she knows how to submit, but then she knows how to lead in the marketplace and in the community. She's leading, and then, and then she says there's this other woman that's going to get the glory. Hmm. How can she lead like that? I saw a video of Kobe Bryant before he passed away. He was doing an interview. For those of you who don't know, uh, Kobe Bryant is not just a great basketball player. Uh, he's number three on my list of top ten players. Most people, he's at least going to be in your top ten. Uh, my uh, top two are Kareem and Michael. So, yes, LeBron is not in there. And if you want to debate that, I would love to talk with you about that. <clears throat> Kobe's number three on my list. And Kobe uh, was a great worker. He had an incredible work ethic and played in the NBA for 20 years as a Hall of Fame basketball player. For those of you who don't know what in the world I'm talking about. Uh, but he grew up in a family of basketball players. His uncle, which is his mom's brother, uh, played 
professional basketball. His dad played for several teams in the NBA as well as Italy and in France. And so to be a bad basketball player, that's not a great thing if you're the son here. And Kobe was. He told a story about when he was 11 years old and he played in a summer league and he didn't score a single point. Now think about that. Basketball is not soccer, all right? There are a lot of points scored. Lay up and easy. You didn't get like a junk basket. It just came to you, bounced off your head, went in the hoop. No free throws, nothing. The interviewer said, how did you not score a point all summer? Did you play? He goes, oh, yeah, I played. He goes, well, what happened? He goes, I was terrible. And he said, but at the end of the, the season, he was crying. He was upset about the whole thing. And his dad came up to him, put his arm around him. And he said, son, I want you to know that whether you score zero points or 60 points, I love you either way. And Kobe said, that gave me the confidence to fail. He said, now I could try. And I knew, he knew he wasn't striving for his dad's approval. He knew he wasn't striving for his dad's love. He had that. But Kobe said, a quote from Kobe, you can send him an email. Don't be mad at me. He said, the hell with that. I'm scoring 60. And he said, so every year I worked on something different. Worked on shooting when I was open. Worked on dribbling. Saw angles. Wasn't the fastest. Figured out different ways to take advantage of the game. Learn the game. Played 20 years in the NBA. His last game, April 13th, 2016, he's playing the Utah Jazz. Any idea how many points he scored that night? 60 points. Hmm. He scored 81 one night. I told Pastor John in the first service. Uh, he was being guarded by a University of Michigan alum, Jalen Rose, <laughs> Toronto Raptors. Hmm. So he had confidence. He didn't have to strive for approval because of his performance, but now he had the freedom to perform based on his giftedness and his skills because of love. You know what the Bible says about you and me? You can't do anything to earn God's love, nor can you unearn God's love. In fact, even if you're not a Christian, God's never loved you more than he does right now. Now, if you are a Christian, you've received that love. If you're not a Christian, you just haven't received it. It doesn't mean it's not available. It doesn't mean it's not pursuing you. It doesn't mean he doesn't have that for you. You just haven't received it. In the New Testament, it talks about for those of us who've received it, think about what's happened. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of, so what's the reason? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Hadn't turned to him. He made us alive together with Christ by grace, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, you have been saved. Let me tell you something. When you are confident in God's love for you, you can step into God's call for you. When you're confident in God's love for you, it's like a foundation that's built. You're never going to fall further than his love. You've got that. You can try stuff. Courage. You can be courageous for his call. Second thing is, dangerously godly leaders are willing to sacrifice in a world plagued with passivity. Dangerously godly leaders are willing, remember they willingly offered their lives in a world that's plagued with passivity. Now we can debate about whether Barak was being passive. I don't want to get into all that today because I think you can land on either side and be honest with how you have approached the text. But the Bible's really clear there were a lot of people that were passive. And they get called out in chapter 5, starting in verse 16 through verse 23-ish, if you want to read it on your own. And if you want to glance at that, you can, but just think about how passivity has been a problem in our society. It's been a problem for a long time. I read an article this week in Forbes magazine, and it was about marriages, and some of you experienced this, and what happens when a husband becomes passive in the home. And this is a secular article. This doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. There are no Bible verses in it. The woman was actually commenting on some studies that were done in the 70s and a specific psychologist from them. The title of the article, written by a woman, was, When the Men Are Passive, the Women Go Wild. It defined passivity as inactivity, unresponsiveness. It defined wild, not as out of control, but as uh, just big. And there's lots, and there becomes more of it, and crazed. And the cycle that the psychologist was talking about in relationships, he said, when difference in the women are from Venus and men are from Mars, it's like different than all of that stuff. It wasn't just categorizing all women are like this and all men are like this. It wasn't doing that nonsense. He said, what I see, though, is a communication pattern where people come into my office, and oftentimes both are intelligent, both are articulate, but at the end of the day, oftentimes the man, he's already been articulate and active and oftentimes even aggressive at work, 
But then he wants to rest and relax where the woman has this desire to connect. And so she's using words to try and connect and he just wants to retreat. And then she's thinking, I wish he would just talk. And he's thinking, I wish he'd just be quiet. And he said, and the cycle feeds itself and it continues to compile on itself where that she starts asking for more and he sees it as demands to perform. And so he resists and becomes more quiet and retreats more. And then even when he does things, because of the times when he does retreat, she doesn't think that anything he does is good enough. And it becomes this cycle, passivity is the problem. Hmm. We see it in other areas. We've seen it in government. Many of you probably had bosses like this. You see these things where passivity becomes a problem. But in our passage today, we see that in the spiritual world, it's even bigger. Look at verse 16. They get called out. There's a roll call for what happened. This is after the battle, singing praise to God for the way that God delivered the people. Now, how in the world did they win? Did you want that? Like, you read the text, and you're like, and they came down. But chapter 5 shows us some details. What happened is, Sisera, a general, well-decorated, he's won a bunch of battles, got 900. You don't park your chariots next to a river if you know there's going to be bad weather. But he did. And then apparently God brought a storm that no one could foresee coming. And the very thing that was their strength, their chariots, became their weakness. And then they fled on foot as the Israelites were charging them on foot. They weren't ready for that, and they all died. So we have a God who can take your enemy's strength and make the weakness. We've seen in the last couple of weeks, he takes our weaknesses and uses that as a strength. Left-handed Ehud, using torches and jars next week. <laughs> a tent peg. Yeah, God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it. Why wouldn't we follow him? But there were people that wouldn't. Look at verse 16. And why did you sit still among the sheepfolds? hear the whistling for the flocks among the clans of Reuben. You're getting called out, Reuben. There were great, great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Burn the ships. That's a different story. Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landing. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives. And then look at verse 23. Curse Meraz. Ooh, they're getting cursed for their passivity. Says the angel of the Lord. Last time we saw the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus was in chapter 2 when he came to the people and said, I told you to drive everyone out. You didn't drive everyone out. Now there's going to be consequences. And they wept. Here, the angel of the Lord says, they didn't come to help the Lord. Well, the Lord needed help. Nobody had a call on you. You weren't part of it. To the help of the Lord against the mighty, they were passive. And the passivity is associated with a curse. Where else do we see passivity associated with a curse in the Bible? Genesis 3? Well, that has some consequences for all of us. Remember what happened in Genesis 3? God created man and woman, gave them to each other, and be together in marriage, gave them one commandment. You can do everything, got everything, rule over all the stuff, name all the animals, it's all awesome, but don't eat of this one tree. He told Adam that. Adam's responsibility is to tell his wife. Eve takes the fruit. How come in the New Testament, Adam is the one that's called out for this? Look at verse 6 in chapter 3 of Genesis. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and then it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was standing right there. Man, if you've got a Bible, you underline that in your Bible. He was standing there watching his wife talk to a snake. First of all, just go, stop talking to snakes. Why? Because it's weird. But even more important, he's lying. Let's get out of here. Run. Doesn't do that. It's passive. She's deceived. Then look what happens in verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence, so it's talking about they, them, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to, not they, them, the man. Said to him, where are you? He's holding the man accountable. He gave the man this position to lead in the home. He was passive, and he stood by and watched his wife fall into sin. And he holds the man accountable. That's why the New Testament reads like this, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, not one couple. Passivity in the home is deadly. Passivity in church is deadly. Passivity in government leadership is deadly. See, passivity, specifically spiritual passivity, is the problem with some of our biggest problems in the world today. That's why so many people are, follow your heart, you do you, be true to yourself, and not going... Why don't we turn to God? He designed this whole thing. Show me a leader, male or female, that calls us to that, and I will follow them. 
and vote. But don't send me more emails about agendas, please. And so here you've got this woman, J.L. She's not passive. She takes a tent peg and drives it through the head of this rapist. But how does she get there? And the text doesn't tell us that she's taken a bunch of other steps. We just get this glimpse into this moment. But we all know there's a general truth that's in our society, whether you believe the Bible or not. Adversity doesn't create character. It reveals character. And so you've got to think to yourself when you read this passage, this, this is pretty huge deal to go, this guy's killed a lot of people. He's raped a lot of women. And so he's in your tent and you're going to kill him? That's bold. I've got to think, I've got to think that jail has taken some small courageous steps before this. Her husband is in cahoots with this guy's boss. This is, this is bold. And then the God's, God is so amazing in so many ways. But this man who treats women like this is killed not only by a woman, that'd be dishonor in that culture, but with a woman's object, a tent peg, oh man, justice. How'd she get there? We don't know for sure with jail, but we do know with Deborah that she takes steps of courage. There's a process that we go through. At our home right now, uh, I give our kids a challenge. I've talked to you a few weeks ago about in Genesis chapter, or uh, Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, there was a whole generation that didn't know the Lord, and they were responsible uh, to disciple our kids. And so... We all do that different ways. You can not like the way that I do it. You can take some idea, whatever you want to do. My kids don't like the way that I do it sometimes, so it's fine. If you don't like it, it's no big deal. I'm used to that. And so what I did is that we were having uh, dinner right before February started, and I said, hey, February, we're going to have a special challenge. And just so you know, their response was something like this. Oh, man. Well, their heads down on the table. It's like terrible. <laughs> no, Dad, why do you do that? We hate that stuff. And so in the past, we've done like push-up challenges, different challenges. So we're in a, I said, it's the shortest month of the year, 28 days. Do a challenge. Here's, and I said, there'll be prizes. What are the prizes? <laughs> I won't get into all the details of it, but they like some of the prizes. One of the challenges is this. You know, I want you to take a risk. I use the word risk at our house sim- uh, synonymously with faith because when you take a risk from our perspective, not from God's, but from our perspective, we don't know how it's going to go. It could go awesome. There could be great victory, or you could get killed. You just don't know. But when I say risk, I don't, they know that I don't mean just like radical, you know, just throw all caution to the wind, be stupid. It, it's something where you're putting yourself out there. And I said, it can be as simple as smiling at somebody you see that's really in a bad mood and you don't know how they're going to respond. It can be as big as changing the direction of your life, career choice, whatever it is. I said, so it's anything, any, make amends with somebody, ask for forgiveness, encourage someone you haven't talked to in a long time, but I want you to journal 25 of the 28 days this month to qualify for the prize. And the reason why is because I want them to know that faith is not an event, it's a way of life. It's part of the training process for them. And the story that I told them in that, I'm um, trying to inspire them. I try to give them a little inspiration, too. So they hate that, too. They're like, stop talking. I want to tell you about all the drama with what's going on at school. But I said, here we go. I'm going to hear this one story. So Neil Amundsen. Uh, and I read him in a book. Uh, it's not a Christian book, but it was called Mastering Fear by a Navy SEAL. And he was talking about meeting Neil Amundsen, who was not a SEAL. Uh, but he was, uh, he was a combat. He was a guy that, like, oversaw everything. And he flew a bunch. And he would be up in the air. And he talked about how his life, when things weren't going right, he knew that he had to get back up into the air. He said, if I was out of the air for two weeks, it's like relationships were felt weird, everything in life felt weird. But here's the thing about Neil Amundsen, base jumper, hang glider, pilot, he is, not was, is afraid of heights. When asked how come he desires to be up in the air so much, how, come he, how can he base jump, how can he hang glide, how can he fly planes? He said, training I think the Lord's training is better, but he said the military is the best at training people because they use a process, crawl, walk, run. Crawl, what can you do right now? And he talked about how when they trained him to go up in the air and skydive, they took him to a place in North Carolina where he could just get the feeling of skydiving and only be a few feet off the ground. And he said, and then the walking for them was to continually do the same things, the same motions over and over, muscle memory, on what had to happen for them to jump out of a plane. The running was when you actually jumped out of a plane in an intense circumstance. But they didn't just take you from crawling to running. They didn't just just crawl. They were going to stretch a little bit, walk, run. And then you look at Deborah's life, and you see what happens here. She's being faithful one-on-one as a prophetess, as individuals come to her at her tree, and they're seeking Wisdom from the Lord, functioning in this priestly role. She walks. And then she goes to the leader of Israel's army, Barak, walks, crawl, one-on-one. Got some significant figure here, Barak, 
And she holds him accountable. Has God not said to you? Okay. And then we're going to see at the end of this, she's reigning as the judge. She's like over the whole nation. Run. Hmm. But she's also a worship leader. And you'll see that all truly, dangerously godly leaders are worship leaders. And by that, I don't mean they have to sing music or songs. It is a song here or a poem that was sung, but it's that what overflows out of them is what drives them from inside. The inside comes out. The passion points. And what we are passionate about eventually comes out of us. When you're pressed up against a wall, given enough time, enough circumstances, you, and that's why you can see people that you can glimpse into their life and see a glimpse of good, but they're really bad people. Or you can see a glimpse of bad, like David commits adultery, but he's called a man after God's own heart. Because when you look at the whole, and we're all broken, but everybody could, the image bearer, but, and so you, you look at the whole, what's there? And does it point, does the passion point to God? So every dangerously godly worship or leader is a worship leader. And so you see here what happens in Judges chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you've got this song of Deborah and Barak. But Barak was told in verse 9 that a woman would get the honor from this battle. <laughs> you can say whatever you want about Barak, whichever side you land on of whether he was being passive at first or not. But what you can't take away from him is this, that even after he's told you're not going to get the glory, he still goes. So here's my question for you. Would you? If you knew it was going to be costly, you knew it would require courage, and you knew you wouldn't get the glory, would you do what God called you to do? Whether that's stay in a marriage, whether that's ask for forgiveness, whether that's a financial risk, whether that's your life, would you? Because the reality is that many of us, we want the glory. And we want what we want. And it might be, and it's usually something from creation, praise of other people, sexual fulfillment, some amount of money because it gives us security or control or whatever. Do you know what we're doing? We're stealing glory from God. Have you all heard of uh, Salvador Dali? He's a, a painter, a sketch artist. He does a lot of different types of art. He's kind of a unique individual, for those of you who are artists and are familiar with him. But I figured talking about poetry, it'd be good to use an artistic illustration. I read a story this week that one of his sketches was stolen from a prison. Let that sink in for a second. And then ask yourself the question, what was it doing in a prison? Who puts an expensive work of art with a bunch of criminals? Like, <laughs> what happened was, uh, if you know much about Salvador Dali, you know that he loved publicity. And one time he was at a dinner and the person in charge of the uh, incarcerating different criminals had talked to him and said, hey, I believe in art therapy. Would you be willing to come to the prison and do sketch art or paint or whatever with the different prisoners? Because I think it would be beneficial to them and they're actually trying to reform them, not just keep them in a place away from everybody else. And he agreed. He said, as long as there's press, bring cameras, make sure this gets some publicity. But he got sick that day. He wasn't able to go. So instead, from his hotel room, he drew a sketch of Jesus on the cross. A sketch of the crucifixion. And they hung it up in the prison, in the cafeteria. For 20 years it hung there. There's one story uh, where a prisoner got mad, threw a mug at it, and coffee broke on the glass, and there's a stain on the, on the drawing. They didn't value it the way that it should have been valued based on some of Salvador Dali's paintings have sold for over $20 million. So you've got the sketch that's here. One warden, though, decided he wanted to get it appraised, and so he sent it to an appraiser in Virginia, and they kept it there in a place where people could see it for a while, and then sent it back to the prison, and ended up in the basement. It actually got thrown away at one point, and a guard saw it, pulled it back out. The warden put it in his office, and then eventually it ended up in the lobby of Rikert's. I know some of you have heard of that, Rikert's Prison in New York, and um, it was next to a Pepsi machine under fluorescent lights. <laughs> Think about who this artist is, if you're familiar and but there was a little plaque underneath it, most people didn't read, that said it was worth over a million dollars, and so somebody stole it. They put a fake up. The fake was so bad, they painted the frame on the fake. And one of the guards went to the ward and said, yeah, I don't think that's the picture that's been there, and it took a few days, interestingly enough. And the really interesting part of the whole story is the people who stole it were the guards that worked in the prison. It was an inside job. One of the interesting things that's happening in our world today where we need these dangerously godly leaders is the people that profess to be godly 
are angry at all the things that are happening in the world while at the same time stealing the glory of the one who died on the cross for them. And oftentimes then portraying Jesus as a real bad imitation. He's the one that deserves the glory. Anybody who had to have Jesus die on the cross for them should be a humble person. That's all of us. And for us to take the glory, oh, he's the one. But the reality is what will happen in the church throughout the years, not just to this, this message, it'll be much like the Super Bowl. Most of us will watch commercials. There's breaks where there's a game uh, today, and that'll happen. Analysts, all kinds of people will be there. There'll be 22 guys on the field at a time. I don't know what will happen to the game, but I know that. 22 guys, 11 on each side. They'll play each other. Hundreds, maybe thousands of journalists, analysts, critics, marketers, people casually watching, passively watching, fans that are really there cheering them on, but only 22 in the game. Only 22 that will know what it's like to be in the game. And that is what will happen in the church. There will be a handful that will courageously, dangerously Follow God's call for their life, their leaders. A leader's not about a position. A leadership is about a disposition. JL is leading up. Deborah is leading down. You can have a position or not have a position to be a leader. Leadership is influence. Dangerously godly, what really makes them godly is the last point. There's a lot of courageous leaders that are good leaders. There's a lot of people that are willing to sacrifice. Their, people flying to the Twin Towers thinking that they're doing something courageous and risky. There's sacrifice. But a dangerously godly leader points people to the one who deserves all the glory. Father, we come before you today. I pray that we would be a church full of worship leaders. I thank you for Bryce. I thank you for our worship team. I thank you for music. But beyond that, the way that people lead in the operating room, the way that they lead in the minivan, the way that they lead in the classroom, the way that they lead in the community when they're taking their garbage out or at a, a parent-teacher meeting or at the soccer game or wherever they're at. God, the way we influence other people, I pray that we'd be worship leaders. And anybody's heart who's not there yet, I pray you'd get us there. Step closer. People who stood earlier and need healing, bring healing. Uh, people who need whatever it is, God, you know. I couldn't guess. I need you to save me. I'm so broken. Would you do something supernatural in our midst that we wouldn't just be gathering today on this rainy day before we go and lay around and watch games and eat food? That we would partake and taste and see that you are good, that you would change, that you would do different, that you would do transformation in lives and marriages and hearts and businesses and cells that are in bodies, cells that are multiplying too fast in cancer and cells that aren't because of growth problems. Father, you do what only you can do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.